Good morning. Uh, we're going to have an interesting show today. First of all, we're at the MCO, MCOE studio in Talmadge, and I'm with Jen Dalton, the um, spokesperson for Hearthstone Village. We're going to talk about Haiti, kids, and Ukiah. Um, it'll be an interesting show, a lot of um, uh, things to discuss. But anyway, first of all, I'd like to introduce Jen Dalton. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks for having me, Dr. Trotter. Um, my pleasure. Um, tell us how you got to Mendocino County. Well, it's a long story, but the short version is that I uh, was living in San Francisco for a couple of decades and working in food systems. And I really wanted to understand, you know, like get closer to the land, obviously, like a lot of people who come up here. I was growing some parsley on my like windowsill, and I'm like, what it would be like to do this at scale? So I, um, I wanted to move somewhere where there felt like it, there was a really strong, um, you know, local food system and local food community. And I stumbled into Mendocino County, and for some reason, Mendocino County didn't kick me out. So I'm still here, ten years later. Okay, very good. So um, I'd like to start with uh, the organization that I also support in Haiti, uh, Hearthstone Village. Uh, the girls' home there, and so give us a little synopsis of what's going on in Haiti and, and the connection it has with Ukiah. Sure. So uh, in 2010, there was a massive earthquake in Haiti. I'm sure a lot of people remember it. It was pretty devastating. Uh, at the time, uh, the hospital here in Ukiah, which was not, it was Ukiah Valley Medical Hospital or something like that, whatever the name was, it was not yet Medical Venice Center. Medical Center. Um, a group of um, nurses and doctors and PAs, et cetera, from the hospital went to Haiti to work triage at a hospital in Carrefour, which is really close to Port-au-Prince. It's like a neighborhood of Port-au-Prince. And they're working at an Adventist hospital there, and uh, Lynn Meadows in particular and uh, Laura Wedderburn hooked up with this, their, um, their translator, this guy named Jean Wesley, I'm not going to pronounce his, name, his last name, Demonslien. And they're going to kill me. <laughs> I didn't pronounce that right. But anyway, Jean Wesley, as we call him. He was their translator. And um, Lynn Meadows was just like, we need to connect with some of these kids here who've been you know, um, left parentless because of the earthquake. You know, Please introduce us to some, some needy orphanage slash you know, place that's helping these kids. And Jean Wesley had a connection with um, a particular home. And um, Lynn and Laura fell in love with these kids and just started doing whatever they could to help them. And it started really with getting their nutrition back into um, a good place, helping them create a, a more stable and safer home environment. They moved a couple of times, I think, until they found the place they're, they're at now that's um, in a safe neighborhood that didn't feel like it was going to fall apart. And then uh, once they got their nutrition and their you know, shelter, and their like home environment stable, they started raising money to send the girls to school. And in Haiti, all of the schools are private, so they don't have a public school system. So there's essentially a graduation rate from high school of 10 to 12 percent, and of that, girls in general are like a very low number. And so, you know, one of the ways to overcome poverty is to educate girls because they stay in school longer and. 
um, you know, can help raise families that are also committed to school. I want everybody to think about, though, what Haiti was like in 2010. They had like a quarter of a million people killed, right? Yeah. In the earthquake. Uh, I went to Haiti a couple of years ago with a niece I have. My brother adopted three children from Haiti after the earthquake. It's kind of a long story, but I went back with Rachel. Um, and Haiti, describe Haiti, because I, I think that people, I want people to understand what the what devastation there was in Haiti and what you all have created out of that chaos and how what lessons you've learned that we could use here in Mendocino County. But if you give a, an idea of, of where you went from in 2010 to now, because it was literally a complete disaster zone. Yeah. I mean, I, ha did not, I was not there in 2010. I've been three times um, in the last, I guess, five years. Well, describe Haiti now. Well, I Haiti mean. now is still, and, and, I, and I don't know Haiti you know, in its entirety, but I have a lot of familiarity with um, Port-au-Prince, and it's still in rubble. Really, you know, there's promises of fixes, there's promises of rebuilding, there's promises from their government, but nothing really gets done. We hear a lot of complaints from the staff, like, yeah, they said they're going to fix this road, but they still haven't. You know, you, it's impossible to drive around there. Um, it is crowded. It's, um, you know, the river that they have that runs through is just filled with trash. Um, there's no real, you know, uh, cohesive infrastructure as we know it. And um, right now, I mean, they're just experiencing an incredible amount of civil unrest on top of um, a resurgence of COVID. So I want people to think about Mendocino County. If you tripled the size of Mendocino County and you had one poor road that, that ran along the edge of the whole county and you had 11 million people living in Mendocino County, three times the size of Mendocino County, with two buildings over two stories. That's Haiti. I was, I've been to Central America a lot. It made Guatemala look like France. I was, I was completely, even though I spent multiple summers in Latin America, uh, I had never experienced anything like Haiti. And that's, that's, you know, 10 years or 20, 20 years, 10 years after the earthquake. Oh, yeah. And it's shocking, too. It's a 90-minute plane ride from Miami. It's right next to the Dominican Republic. These are first world countries, essentially, that are their neighbors. And they're still in this state of just utter um, chaos. So tell us what the, um, the girls' home is like now. And then I'd like you to tell us more about how you got there and what lessons you've learned. Well, uh, the girls, gratefully, we can afford to feed them three meals a day, which has been huge. We used to only be able to afford to give them two meals a day. Um, they live in a house. There are 30-plus are girls. Um, they live in two different homes. Um, one of them is for girls that are 18 and under, and that one has um, a support system of several women who, like, share rooms with the girls um, and kind of are their disciplinarians for their, like, cohort, so to speak. And then there's like a head woman who is in charge of all of them. We have Jean Wesley who works for us now, and he is the um, you know education um, administrator and the administrator in general of all of the things that keep the place running. And then there we have a driver named Louchard who takes the girls to and from school because it's really unsafe to travel on their own. There's a lot of kidnappings. There's a lot of um, theft, and you know just it's not safe for them uh, to travel on their own. And then um, there's 
a group of um, two other guys who kind of help, um, you know, keep things safe around the house and stuff like that and help protect uh, the community there. And, you know, it's, it's a pretty lively place. You wake up really early in the morning when you stay there and the girls are doing their usual things, getting dressed and what have you, and they all wear these cute little uniforms to school and have a big breakfast and head out for the day and come back and just, you know, if you can imagine, you know, 30 plus girls living together, it's just cacophony constantly. But they, you know, they sometimes they fight and sometimes they don't and they're very loving with each other and they take care of each other and they're living in community and I think that that's, the, the thing that I know for Lynn Meadows and the rest of the folks on the board um, was really important for them is to create an intergenerational community environment that is mutually supportive. And so the younger girls are taking care of the smaller girls and the women who are in charge of things, we call them the mommies, they you know, are also inner, um, in an interrelated relationship with the girls where there's, you know, there's rules and things like that, but there's a lot of negotiation going on. And then the girls that are over 18, um, as long as they're in school or, or pursuing some kind of higher education slash job-related, um, uh, you know, uh, pursuit, they we support them in living in a home because once you're 18, you're just kind of kicked out of the orphanage. And traditionally, we like to say we're not just an orphanage, and we're not really an orphanage; it's really a girls' home, um, because in traditional homes like this. Um, they bring a teachers in and they educate the kids at the home. And so when you turn 18, you're just like thrown on the streets and you're lucky to make anything happen with your life. But we send them to private schools in their neighborhood. They're interacting with, um, you know, kids from their, from their neighborhood or from other neighborhoods because we do send some of the girls to a higher scholastic achieving school that's more college prep. And they're having, you know, traditional high school and grade school, middle school experiences with other kids who have parents, maybe, or so that's it's much more community based. And we are also just inspiring and empowering them through education to become leaders of Haiti as opposed to victims of the situation there. Yeah, um, we're on Kaysway X with Eddie. We're talking about um, Girls Home in um, Haiti, Hearthstone Village, that's supported by Ukiah in Mendocino County. Um, and we're going to discuss more social issues generally in just a moment. The thing that um, impresses me is that you didn't choose these girls. This isn't Westland College. Um, we had um, all of a sudden, you know, you took these girls Tell, tell them how you most how most of these girls came into your. Yeah, home. I mean it's a variety of ways. You know, a lot of it's interconnected within the religious community that um, the founders of the home are a part of. So the founders are Haitian. They live in New York City or outside of New York City, and they they encounter a lot of the girls through their network. But it's also a you know a state sanctified orphanage so sometimes the social workers will come in and they'll say we found this girl she needs somewhere to be will you take her so you've got an extra bed because as the girls are 18 and they're they're forced to leave essentially a bed opens and the social workers know about that and so they're like hey you know take this infant and I remember once upon a time when there were 12 girls and then all of a sudden you got the new house out outside of downtown and there was 23 girls and now you're telling me that there's 31 girls? Well, yeah, because they're the under 18s that live, and I can't, I don't know all the, the correct numbers, but there's, you know, 20 plus girls that are living in the under 18 house. 
And then the over 18s live in another house. And it just, yeah, I mean, it's like 33 girls in total now that we're supporting and the staff. So they've had 10 uh, girls graduate from high school. When you have a 5% graduation rate for girls in, in Haiti, I think that's pretty remarkable. I've been supporting Kevly for 10 years, who's this remarkable young woman who is um, going to secretarial school, um, who is a phenomenal artist. I have this beautiful flower plant, plant, plant painting in my bedroom. Um, and what surprises me is how individually um, all these girls are supported. First of all, I'd like you to tell them how you support the girls individually, but how um, remarkably you all have somebody trying to get into law school, nursing school, secretarial school. I mean, it's it's a, not a cookie-cutter place. Right. So, you know, I mean, maybe some of the listeners are familiar with, like, you know, adopt this child, and you get this picture of them, and, you know, you can support them in Africa or Guatemala or wherever they are. We do something similar. We have something called education sponsors, and they, you know, commit just for a year at a time to, you know, support a portion of their education expenses, which is around $3,000, but they can contribute, you know, an amount that works for them. So we split each girl has several education sponsors that help um, support those costs. And then, you know, we have a board member, Nancy McGivney, Niv, some of you may know her. She's extraordinary, and she helps manage their education process with John Wesley and also manages all the education sponsors and their relationships with the girls. So I think most of the sponsors that we have, and we have room for more if you want to, to be one, um, are, have been supporting these girls like you for a decade or more, and they are they have very close relationships with them because some of them have been there to Haiti like you have. They write regular letters, they send pictures, you know. It's a very, um, it is an individual relationship that's really special, and it's, we're also just like 100% transparent with the money and everything. It's like, this is, look, we've graduated 10 girls from high school, and it's right. extraordinary, and this is the result of, of this kind of support and, and interrelationship. And they all are going to do something good in the community. That's the other thing that surprises me. Um, the, the, um, I'm, um, I blanked. Sorry, go ahead. There's something intelligent I was going to say there, but go ahead. <laughs> well, I mean, they're, we're supporting them and pursuing the things that are important to them and also tracking their education needs. Oh, so, nice. We have um, a couple of girls that have learning disabilities, and so we do bring in a teacher who works with them because they just couldn't handle the school environment. And we bring in tutors if they're having problems with math or Spanish or you know what have you. And we help get them support to pass these like crazy government tests that they have to pass just to move on to the next level. And um, you know we just we really try to support them along the way, and you know we're. They get three meals a day. They get support from these, you know, American, mostly Mendocino County, um, caring, you know, adults who are supporting them. And I just think that there's this reciprocity that's happening. It's like, we want to support you in overcoming your situation there. And um, in, in return, you know, this, the people who are participating from Mendocino County get to be a part of a community that's doing something really extraordinary. It's actually working. Yeah. The thing I was thinking of was Nancy. I mean, she is like a mainframe, you know, blue computer. Uh, the woman is extraordinary. When you talk about the educational 
pursuits, diversity, individual care. Kevley got, you know, math tutors, but passed the high school graduation test, which is a big deal. Um, but she is um, extraordinary in the educational support of these Yeah, I mean, she does it professionally. She she supports teachers, but at the same time, like, she knows every single thing, personality quirks, interests, you know, et cetera, of every single girl that's there. I mean, minus the little infants that we just got, but we're learning about them. But, you know, it's an evolving relationship over time, and and she has really close relationships with a lot of the girls. She talks to them on a weekly basis. They are on FaceTime or on Facebook Mm -hmm. messaging and all kinds of stuff, and she's... Yeah, she's she's kind of devastated right now because we can't go. Yeah, they're telling yeah, us they're, not to come. So I know that's hard. This happened a couple of times where they've told you not to go, and it's it's a difficult thing. So I'd like to um, and tell them about the fundraiser. Yeah, and sure. then we're going to go to Ukiah. Sure. So we've got a virtual fundraiser that we're hosting on June 24th through the 27th, and it's totally virtual. Um, if you're interested in participating, uh, you can go to our website, which is herstone-village.com or .org, and there's all the information on there, and you can get in touch with us. Um, but we're really excited because this money goes towards supporting the three meals a day, the supportive home environment, the staff salaries, the internet, the toilet paper, the <laughs> cleaning supplies, et cetera. It just kind of c- creates that foundation that keeps this whole thing humming. And just to let you know that it wasn't until last year or two years ago that all their meals were cooked outside in this little closet area at the back of the house next to the tiny lawn all by charcoal. Still the same. Well, I got a stove. So oh, some you of it did. Is, there's, <laughs> well, they're still going to cook that way, yeah, too, because that's just how they that's do how it. That's how they do it. Yeah. It's, I'm just saying that they're not living in the Hilton. No. Um, so um, I'd like you to discuss lessons learned from Haiti and your own personal experiences about ACEs and childhood, you know, you know, community, et cetera, et cetera, that we could think about more here because my daughter, uh, Dr. Amber, has a, has a psychology degree, uh, keeps talking about how important community is and how communities aren't like they were 50 years ago. So that's the, what I like to discuss. Right. Well, firstly, I just want to say that because of the involvement of folks like Lynn Meadows and Laura Wedderburn and Emily Fry and, you know, Nancy Watanabe and Niv McGivney and and these women who kind of um, are like the Greenfield ladies, really, you know, they came to this project with the intention of creating an intergenerational community. That was a really important piece of this work. And so strengthening that and keeping that alive is what we consider to be the foundation of the success of this work, that they're, that they, you know, that community is like number one priority because it is, it's the thing that gives these girls um, a sense of purpose and a sense of safety and without safety, you know, it's really hard to thrive, right? So I know for myself, one of the reasons why I'm interested in ACEs, which are adverse childhood experiences is because when I did the ACE test, I noticed I have a really high ACE score. It's because I grew up with alcohol in the family. I'm an alcoholic father. I um, was bullied in school. I, you know, I felt kind of unsafe in my home, even though it wasn't awful, but it just made me feel unsafe. And, you know, some other things that have happened during my life um, 
gave me a really high A score. But then I took a resiliency test and noticed I also have a really high resiliency score, which means I have strong coping mechanisms that have allowed me to overcome um, these adverse childhood experiences and help me thrive in life. So these girls who've experienced like extreme poverty, they've experienced like major earthquakes, civil unrest, um, you know, like not knowing sometimes, you know, if they're going to have a next meal. I mean, one of the girls in the home uh, who's no longer with us, but she's like a house slave, you know, and so they're growing up with serious trauma. I want to I want to discuss that because I think it's an unusual thing because Rachel, my niece, um, that's now married, living in San Antonio, um, when she was 13, um, she complained to a neighbor how her mother always made her do more of the cleaning, more of the washing of the floors, more of the, you know, sort of dirty work around the house and not her sisters. When the woman told her that, well, actually, that isn't your mother and father. Those aren't your sisters. And in Haiti, when you have too many kids, there's a term for it that I forget. Oh, there is that, a term for it. I know I it's not a good term. <laughs> it's, it's a derogatory term. But you're given to another family as a Cinderella or whatever you want to call it uh, situation. And when she was 13, she found out about this and just went ballistic and was thrown out of the house and ended up in this orphanage where my brother uh, adopted her and these other two kids. Um, and just just to tell you that things aren't pretty in Haiti and they've done a remarkable thing here. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, so... Um, and, and I'm sorry, I'd like people to listen to what an ACE is, the ACE score is, because I think uh, Kaiser came up with this, and if you look at people that do poorly in life, a lot of them have high ACE scores from their childhood experiences, and now the school district has an ACE program at the Alex Rohrbaugh Center after school, but I'd like you to, uh, I'd like the listeners to think about the ACEs program and the necessity of having good resiliency. Yeah, so I, I learned about the ACEs experience and the, its importance in you know life because I was working at NCO for a while and doing this big project in Lake County. And something I learned, you know, is since Men NCO is the uh, community action network for Lake and Mendocino counties, is that I mean, like eighty-five to ninety percent of the population has you know adverse childhood experiences. It's it's not uncommon. It's something very common in the United States right now, which is why there's a lot of trauma-informed um, oh. trainings for institutions, for teachers, et cetera, because we are dealing with intergenerational trauma in our communities, but also across the United States and in Haiti as well. So this intergenerational trauma, which can be a result of you know, a divorce or living with a family member who's incarcerated or a family member who's addicted to drugs or alcohol, um, someone who is depressed or has mental illness that's like imp negatively impacting the home or experiencing physical or, or emotional neglect or abuse, um, any kind of you know sexual abuse as well, or witnessing your mother being abused. These are the kinds of things that um, you know are a part of that intergenerational trauma that we're talking about that creates your adverse childhood experiences and like you said you could take a test to find out where you stand on this and i was blown away to see my t my score was off the charts and i'm like okay so <laughs> how is it that i'm not super screwed right. up right? right but you know and i i'm not going to say i was like a super great student in school either but i had a support system like i had a grandfather who was really loving to me and made me feel like i was special or i had a safe place to go 
And um, I know that I experienced um, a variety of different communities that I have found that make me feel a part of something, that I have a sense of purpose. For me, since my early 20s, I've been practicing yoga. And so it's like, I might not know all the people in my yoga class, but we're all doing something together. And I feel a part of something that gives me a sense of purpose, like taking care of myself slash, you know, having some kind of spiritual practice, et cetera. With these girls in Haiti, you know, it's like they're, they're living in trauma constantly, but they have each other and they have these mommies that they can turn to who, you know, they fight with just like they would fight with their regular mommy. Um, and, but they're, and they're encouraged in school and they're, you know, they're also, they don't have access to drugs as far as we know. They definitely, we've heard of some access to alcohol, but they're not growing up in an environment where alcohol abuse, um, they're not watching TV all day long. They don't have their own cell phones for the most part. So they're not like scrolling, you know, Instagram or, right. you know, TikTok all day long. They definitely watch TV and they look at the internet and stuff, but it's not something that they're doing all the time. Mm -hmm. They don't even have electricity half the day, right? So they're, they don't eat fast food. They don't have money, you know? So most of the food they're eating is, um, is plant-based, you know, and, and fresh and local for the most part, a lot of rice. But, you know, they're, they're living outside of, you know, our traditional American, standard American way of life. And they're experiencing a cohesiveness of community that I, I personally didn't grow up experiencing, maybe on the softball field, but, you know. And I think that that's an important thing for people to think about because I, this book that my daughter told me to read, I read the synopsis of it, is called Bowling Alone. If you want to read about this, how communities changed from the 1900 to 1970 and since 1970 is Bowling Alone by a guy named Putnam. Um, and talks about how we have gone from great social interactions with people to everybody's in front of the TV, everybody is drinking by themselves, you know, uh, as opposed to, I think the Rotary Clubs, the Lions Clubs are phenomenal organizations, and I wish three times as many people belonged to them um, because that's the community trying to change things in our society that we need. I'm going to say one other thing because we're going to start taking phone calls pretty soon. But um, the um, the Alex Rohrbaugh Center exists because of Ned Walsh came to me one day as public health officer and told me that there was an article I should read. And it showed it didn't matter if you came from Hollywood or Hell's Kitchen in New York City. The only reason that anybody makes it through and becomes a positive person is for two things. One, you have a mentor, your grandfather, and you're given a positive things to do. For me, it was Guy Bevel and Amigos de las Americas, a mass vaccination program in Latin America that I did five, five summers as a teenager. But I think that everyone should be belonging to some organization that's doing some good in the world. But as a kid growing up, if you do not have a mentor and some positive things to do, you're out of luck. Having said that, on the other hand, it doesn't matter if it's Hell's Kitchen in New York. If you do have those two things, you can have resilience and you make a difference. Yeah, you, well, you come and through. in the United States, we're so encouraged, especially up here in Mendocino County. Oh, you got to be independent. You know, it's like it, we're not. It, there's not a general sense of let's be interconnected, let's help one another. 
And when you're in an environment where there's so much strife constantly, you have to rely on each other. So maybe they're kind of forced into it. But maybe the pandemic has been something that will help us learn maybe so. to be a little bit more interconnected. I hope that we grow from that. But, you know, again, it is. It's like, I mean, not only are you watching TV alone, everyone's got their own channel on Netflix or whatever it is. And no one's, you know. And doing Instagram or yeah. whatever. Yeah, and so, and, and you know, I was just listening to, I'm going to go off the rails here for just a minute, but I was listening to this guy, he's a professor at the University of Nevada, or of Utah, and he's a philosophy professor, and he writes about the gamification of our experiences as humans. Say that again. The gamification of okay. our lives, essentially, and how overuse of social media, um, it, you know, the social media is like a game. It establishes uh, rules that are, you know, dictated by um, an a momentary experience where it's like, oh, I like this. Oh, I'm like, I'm getting lots of likes. I'm liking this. And you feel like you're connected to something, but it's momentary. It's not, um, and it's also then helping. I, I'm not going to explain it necessarily right, but this whole idea of like, it's informing you of your values. You're not getting agency in in letting your values oh, be expressed. And so I feel They're like... They're setting up the game and you're playing in it. Yeah, exactly. So the question to ask yourself is, is this a game I want to play? And so I feel like that's something that tracks me about continuing to do this work in Haiti. It is a game I want to play. I'm enjoying learning from these girls and learning from this community that is highly effective considering the fact that it's not perfect. But... I didn't grow up with that, you know? And so, you know, any challenges that I'm experiencing right now as an adult, sometimes I look back and I'm like, look, if these girls can graduate from high school, like, I can do this, right? You know, they're, they're overcoming obstacles that are just unbelievable. And again, we're talking with Jen Dalton, Hearthstone Village, the Haitian home for 31 girls. Um, it's grown quite a lot over the last 10 years. But also we're discussing, you know, what can we do different in Mendocino County? I, the um, Boys and Girls Club is a robust thing with the ACES program from the school at the center uh, every day. But I think we should have more of that everywhere. I think we should have more soccer after school. I think we should have more um, individual um, things for kids to do. Okay, we have a call. Go ahead, Connor. You're on the air. Hi. I was uh, stimulated by your mention of the difference between living a solitary lifestyle and belonging in some kind of a community or right. organization or something. I was remember. I was reminded uh, that uh, Kurt Vonnegut, a, a writer that many people in our generation, uh, older generation, admired, uh, once said that um, he thought people should belong to churches. Uh, because it would give them some community and that the trends in the country that he was seeing at that time, you know, a, a decade or two, a couple of decades ago, were not uh, something that he was, he didn't, he wasn't real encouraged about the future. And he thought that uh, belonging to a church is not necessarily because you're a big believer, but uh, to have a community around you was a, a, a necessary thing in life. Uh, and that's a great comment. And I think I, I grew up in the Methodist church and did a lot of Methodist youth stuff. Um, and I think there's a great sense of community in churches. 
And, you know, I think churches are a great institution and should be copied by other organizations because you have a group of people that care about you and want to see you and expect to see you and interact with you. Absolutely. I mean, that's one of the things that's been really successful about the work in Haiti. Now, we're not a religious organization, Hearthstone, but the the girls' home, they're rooted in the Adventist church. They go to church every week. They they pray every night together and sing songs. Oh, cool. And it's a, it's a big part of their day. And, you know, I'm also reminded that... Um, you know, the whole concept of the blue zones, right? You know, they talk about these communities where people live healthy lives over 100 years of age. And being involved in some kind of, you know, group spiritual effort, you know, church or otherwise, is one of the the elements that help people live healthy lives. And even like my mom, for example, she just became a widow three years ago, and she's just feeling really alone. I'm like, Mom, go join a church. And I grew up in a very, like, my parents were like a religious escapees or something, but you know, I'm, she's like, yeah, maybe I'm going to do that. I'm like, yeah, they'll have you know volunteer opportunities, things for you to do. Who knows? Maybe you'll meet some cute man. You know, I mean, there's there's it offers so much more. I feel like you know, in my generation, and I'm considered you know Generation X. We I think grew up um, with you know kind of this anti-establishment attitude. And um, at least I know I did personally, and Kurt Vonnegut was played a huge role in that. Um, oh, really? Oh, yeah. I'm from That's Indianapolis, and he he's from there too. So um, we, you know, we need to have permission to you know to be a part of these things too, just from inside of our own hearts, as opposed to feeling like we're being judged by other people for the choices that we're making. Say that again. Well, I feel like as someone who grew up in a non-religious environment, anyone who was, my parents raised me to kind of be like, oh, those religious people over there, right? Mm -hmm. And I grew up in kind of a judgy environment around it. And so when I was pursuing my own spiritual life, I was really scared of churches. I thought I would be brainwashed or there'd there'd be some ideas they'd implant that weren't going to be in alignment with who I am. And and now as an adult, I I just see the value in a church community. I have cousins that live in a very tight-knit church community and they're just so happy and thriving and they have, you know, hundreds of people who care about them, especially when things you know, aren't going perfectly, they have people they can lean on. And that's what what works about the work that we're doing in Haiti as well. Mm -hmm. There's a lot of community support. Um, It's it's interesting in Haiti how you all have put together this organization where you have uh, John Wesley, who's a wonderful man, you have the mommies, you have the the, uh, principal woman, I forget her, the head woman. Mama Mama Gina. Mama Gina. And you have... um, the drivers, you have the food people, you have this whole community you've built around their needs, educationally wise, et cetera, et cetera. And I wish that, you know, another desire of mine is, is um, I want to do, I'm going to talk about Iceland just for a second, and if that doesn't bore everybody. Iceland had the worst uh, drug and alcohol usage amongst teenagers in all of Europe in 2010. alcohol, cigarettes, and marijuana monthly, at least. And they now have the best rate. They have less than 10% usage of all those amongst 14 and 15-year-olds. You used not to be able to go out to the capital. Reykjavik. Because of all the drunk 14, 15-year-olds. 
Mm-hmm. Um, so now they had the best. And what they did was they gave all the moms a credit card and they signed up the kids for Monday, Tuesday, Thursday, Friday, after school programs, music, you know, soccer, basketball, whatever they wanted. And they had to do something with their kids two weekends out of the month, i.e. go for a hike or go bowling or do that was the entire program. And now they had, in, the, in Iceland, 300,000 people beat England in, in soccer championships. Um, it's been wonderfully successful. And I would like to see more after-school programs all over Mendocino County. We have these wonderful facilities. The schools have gotten a lot of money uh, in the last couple of years. They've gone from poverty to well-off. Um, but I think it, it, in, it demands a lot of PTA, citizens' involvement. What can we use the schools for after-school to give these kids the same thing in, in Iceland? Look up Iceland Youth and Drugs. We have rampant problems with drugs and alcohol in Mendocino County. I, you know, and I'll tell you, if you want to turn around a 55-year-old methamphetamine addict, you go right ahead. But I have, you know, I'm too old to be doing it. But why we don't do more prevention, 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 and have more after-school programs, boys and girls clubs, for all the children? Because I tell you, um, that's when to do it. It's not when you're 55 and have an alcohol problem and throwing up blood in the ICU. I'll stop ranting. Well, I mean, that's one of the reasons why First Five is really important in our community. It's such a great organization because they, you know, studies show that it's the zero to five is where so many of these, um, you know, trauma responders, et cetera, just get hardwired into the brain. So that's a great organization that's that's supporting young parents and young moms. But, you know, you're speaking, too, about, you know, it kind of brings back that generational trauma conversation. It's like, well, yeah, it'd be great if parents could be more involved with their kids, but it's hard for them to do that when they grew up in trauma, too. And, you know, I think I mentioned it's just it's it's something that we're experiencing systemically in our culture, this generational trauma, um, which is because of what you just discussed, this breakdown in our social structures, our breakdown in our um, you know, our trust in institutions, et cetera, and then, the, you know, the rise of television and the Internet and just, you know, living in a very, um, I don't know, politically divisive culture where your independence is seen as your greatest strength. Whereas, you know, if we live an in an environment, view. yeah, mm-hmm. where we were encouraged to be more interconnected and interdependent, we might um, be able to over- overcome these challenges a little bit more easily. Okay, we have another call. Caller, you're on the air. Oh, hi, Marv. This is Juanita Joy. Hi, Juanita Joy. And Goddess. Hi, and, uh, Marv and Jen, thank you so much. This is really a wonderful program. I'm really enjoying it, and I'm thinking it's so hard to get everything in in one program, and you're doing a great overview. So I appreciate that. I had one comment I wanted to make, and that was that related to our uh, fundraising. Um, All of the fundraising that we do goes directly from the fundraiser's hand, or the uh, donor's hands, to Hearthstone, and then directly to uh, the orphanage. There's no middle people. You're not taking a cut? It goes directly to the orphanage. (laughs) Okay. And... uh, and that's really important because a lot of people ask. There's a lot okay. of corruption that goes on, and uh, we know about that. But um, uh, 
our fundraising is pretty solidly, um, whatever you want to call it, uh, controlled. And uh, we do several fundraisers. I think Jenna's done a great job of, of talking about that. That was pretty much all I wanted to say, other than thank you guys so much for doing this. Sure. And, and tell us the email or the, the website to go to. It's Hearthstone. It's Hearthstone. It's H-E-A-R-T-H-S-T-O-N-E and then dash village.org. And Juanita Joy, thank you so much. I, you're obviously one of our super, super, um, you know, important board members. I forgot to mention (laughs) you and your daughter, Kieran as well. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, It's hard to get everybody in there, but, um, yeah, and I've been to Haiti, uh, several times myself. So I have a real clear understanding of what's going down there and you guys are covering it really well. So thanks a lot. And by the way, Juanita Joy, thank you, Juanita Joy. Juanita Joy is a tile goddess. If you ever wanted to do anything with tile, give her a call. Um, First Five does a great thing. Do we have a – go ahead. You were going off on how First Five is fabulous because they are. You know, I think they they offer a lot of support to parents, um, you know, just everything from like – emotional support, parenting classes, um, and I'm not, you know, well-versed in everything that they offer, but I know they, you know, also, you know, teach moms how to breastfeed effectively and why, why that's important or, you know, or Mm -hmm. why their choice not to do that is totally fine too. Um, but just that connection with your child and, 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 you know, how to deal with, um, temper tantrums and all the things that are a part of, you know, interacting with toddlers and, and making them feel like their environment is something that they can roll around in and you know in a safe way that encourages them to become you know autonomous but also interconnected and you know that feeling of of um bonding you know that occurs between families well i have the you know perfect grandchild except they didn't name him marvin um callum is two years old and um i was shocked that how much they how much importance they put in the zero to three stage I thought that you were just rolling around on the rug and eating Cheerios, but you know, uh, they said that, that it's very, you know, all this happens when you have, you know, when you're very young. We'll take the call first, though. Caller, you're on the air. I thought that you were just rolling around on the rug. And... Hello? Hello, you're on the air. This is KZYX? Yes. Uh, Yes, uh, I was just uh, listening to the discussion, and uh, <laughs> it's a great discussion. I uh, teach a woodshop, and uh, I've promote, been promoting uh, the idea of uh, woodshop for, uh, you know, 6th, 7th, 8th grade level, which doesn't hardly exist anymore. I'm trying to keep it alive at both of the Waldorf schools, but as an after-school program, uh, building things, uh, uh, you, you know, you're talking about having a mentor with something creative and positive to do, and there's nothing more creative than uh, building, uh, you, you know, useful items out of wood. And, thank, uh, thank you very much. Um, the I think he makes an excellent point, and I'll just tell you that my wife Cass, whose father was a middle school teacher, did woodshop for two years, and she said it was a great experience, and she loved it, and she still uses her 
talents today. But I think the woodshop after school is an excellent example of mentoring, having kids doing the same thing, doing something positive that they can be proud of, et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, I mean, I took woodshop in seventh and eighth grade. Did you? Yeah, I loved it. And my dad was a, a, you know, a um, contractor construction guy. And so, you know, he took a lot of pride in the fact that I did that as well. But I learned how to... um, Women taking woodshop. I like this. great. But my my thinking um, about the caller's um, comment, too, is that we also, as a culture, need to... um, uplift the trades you know again and and also bring back you know apprenticeship programs and guilds and things like that because it is that working with our hands and and not everything has to be this like intellectual you know four-year college pursuit you don't have to be like the the tech guy or whatever there's so many wonderful jobs that are um, in service to community and service to art and service to all these wonderful parts of our lives that we just don't we don't uplift enough in our culture. I agree with the trades. Um, you know they're doing some interesting things in Santa Rosa, but there's a huge need for this. My son's a you know a contractor and builder, and you know watching um, our house burn down, and so having uh, Cass's cousin come up to do the electricity and friends do the plumbing. Um, um, Lynn's Lynn's son-in-law. There's um, an enormous amount of difficulty and smarts and experience that you have to have to do the trades. And I agree with you. Everybody talks about being a computer program, but it seems like it framing a house is a whole lot more fun. Oh, totally. And, you know, I just reflect on uh, my brother's experience growing up, and he's just a little bit younger than me. But you know, he didn't love school, and he does work in the trades. I mean, he's in a union. He works for the public utility um, in Indianapolis, and but he's been there for like 30 years, and, you know, he has a really great job, I think. But at the same time as he was growing up, I think he was compared to me, perhaps, or other people in the school where it's like, well, you're not high-achieving, so, you know, you're bad and wrong. It's like, well, that's not necessarily the case. We need to, again, have a little bit more an individualized look at how students are thriving and what might you know, help direct them towards activities and things that would be more in alignment with what would light them up and make them feel good about themselves. Okay. Yeah, my um, um, brother's an, oldest brother is an electrical engineer, and I would rather jump off a cliff than be an electrical engineer. But um, if Bob Dress, you know, would um, teach me how to build things or my son, you know, I would love that because everybody has their individual desires. Right. And I think that's what's working about this environment in Haiti, too. It's like, thank goodness for Niv McGivney. You know, she just knows what all of these girls are all about and what would really help um, fuel their passions in a reasonable way, you know, within what we can afford, et cetera. And so you know, we're really helping to guide them towards a, a fulfilled life. And, you know, our education system, and I can only speak for public school, you know, it's just so driven by, like, test scores and, um, you know, scores, 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 and tracking, et cetera. They're just, you know, and also packed classrooms, you know, what have you, that there's very little um, – effort put towards, you know, individualized attention and praise to all the teachers out there. I know you guys are trying. I would never be able to do it. Yeah, and me neither. I tried. Um, But the, you know, just the the, kind of the mentoring that's needed on that individual basis, you know, even with counselors, et cetera. I, I feel like, and this is just from my experience, that 
I had to put in so much of my own initiative to pursue the things that were important to me, which, you know, there's, mm -hmm. that's good too. But I didn't get a lot of encouragement from the school environment to, you know, I was actually told like not to pursue, oh, you're not good enough for that, you know, et cetera. It's just like, could you just let me try? <laughs> you know, that's all I'm asking for is a chance. Um, but I just felt that the public school environment didn't really, um, didn't have the time, you know, when you're, you know, got 4,000 students at the right. school. I think they have an impossible task. Absolutely. You know, you know when again. you're trying to, um, I went to teach a class at the junior high school because of a person that came in the emergency room once. And I'm not used to absolute failure, but I had 30 minutes in front of 30 kids and walked out the door saying, that was an F. I, you know, I went back just because I'm not used to just being, you know, having 30 kids look at me like I'm some sort of stupid so-and-so. And so the next time I thought I did a C minus, you know, I talked to the teacher, you know, try to change the way I spoke, et cetera, et cetera. But that's a teaching is a tough job. Yeah. Well, and teachers should get paid a, a, lot, a, more. a lot more money. That is another thing I want to change. I think that elementary school teachers should be goddesses, mm -hmm. you know, in Finland, just to let you know, Finland went from the worst educational uh, thing in Europe to the best. You know what they did? They tripled the, si they tripled the salaries of teachers. Now there's 10 people wanting to be a teacher in Finland for every college, you know, the teacher schools. And they have gone to the best sco scores in uh, Europe. And I don't understand when the most important thing that you can have is educating youth and you don't pay the teachers more than you do. I think teachers earn every dollar. We should have much better pay for teachers, especially, you know, my brother teaches college at the University of Alaska. Well, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, the one in a thousand kids that are taking his legal classes in Alaska isn't who I'm worried about. I'm worried about the, the 4,700 kids that are in third grade that need, you know, more uh, compassion, et cetera, et cetera. I think we need better teachers and better after school programs and everybody should join the Rotary Club and I'll be quiet now. <laughs> well, I mean, I agree. I feel like it's such a, um, teaching is such a, an important profession and we absolutely need to advocate for parent, for teachers to get paid more money. Um, and they're with our kids all day long. You know, it's like, it's, if you don't think that's having an impact on your kid, you're crazy. Right. You know, and obviously peer relationships have an important impact on your kids, too. And that's another thing that's been really effective about Haiti is that, you know, we've built a library there. And all the girls, you know, they're really into reading. And when school... Reading? reading. Kids, well, kids reading yeah, books? books? Yeah. They're not staring at a screen? No. And we let them... We took them to the library and had that... Or to the bookstore and picked out a bunch of books. I got a grant from the Kodak Foundation, which was really cool. Really? Um, so we... Um, but when school was out, because they weren't allowed to go because of COVID and civil unrest, et cetera, for quite some time um, this past year, the older girls started reading to the younger girls. The younger girls were super interested in like learning how to read or getting books or, or f talking about the books, et cetera, because they saw the older girls putting that emphasis on you know, reading and studying, et cetera, and it just created this environment where that was something that was really important. It's how they entertained themselves. I know. I was always shocked uh, coming home, and Mary was reading to the kids these, you know, these books of um, what is the like the Hobbit and that sort of thing, and they were enthralled. And they also were much more articulate and and had a better vocabulary than I ever did as a knuckle dragger in Houston. 
making mud pies out by the garage. You know, my mother had four boys. It was a difficult situation. But it was amazing how um, the kids had this whole other world to themselves about reading reading books and adventures and well i'd have to say that for me reading is was one of my coping mechanisms and still is you know it's the most important thing in my one of the most important things in my life is access to a good book because it does it has the power to take you away from your own life and kind of give you some perspective Mm -hmm. that you didn't have otherwise and i feel like i was raised by so many of the books that i read when i was little so it was and that's another thing that first five does is they give out books to families and they encourage reading and it is. It's it's super important, and a book is a beautiful thing. Okay, I didn't read start reading until I was fifty, but there was a book club, and I finally decided I should read the books if I was going to the book club. Um, I should start. I should have started earlier. Tell us a little about about Haiti and the organization before we go off the air here. Just sort of give us the brief what's going on in Haiti with Hearthstone Village. Uh, well, right now we're just supporting the girls uh, to get the best education they can, and we're sending them to private schools uh, because that, those are the only schools available to them um, instead of getting educated in the orphanage. Um, and so we do that by um, having education sponsors and just donors who participate in the organization. 100% of the money that we raise goes to this effort. And we're having a fundraiser from June 24th to June 27th. It's virtual, so you can participate anywhere, from anywhere, from your from your you know your bed and your phone. And you can learn more about it at hearthstone-village.org. So I like the in the conversation with saying, try to be a bigger part of your community. You can make a difference. Everyone listening to the show can make a difference. Find the place you know where you can read to children where you can participate in Rotary, where you can do something different with plowshares. You know, there's a lot of good organizations that need voluntary help, um, and you can make a difference in your life and a child's life or somebody else's life. Yeah, and I want to say if you want to know more about volunteer opportunities in the community, you can always reach out to the Volunteer Network at NCO. And, you know, I think that as we're all uh, emerging into our new selves as the pandemic um, evolves, I think a lot of us are looking for new social connections um, to overcome the isolation we've all been experiencing. And this is a great time to get out there and find something to contribute to. And what's that at NCO? It's the NCO Volunteer Network. I think you can just Google it. Vo- NCO Volunteer Network. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, we've been talking with Jen Dalton, a Haitian uh, uh, girls' home goddess. Um, and thank you very much, Eddie, for helping us out. This has been a production of KZYX Philo 90.7 FM, KZYZ Willits and Ukiah 91.5 FM, and Fort Bragg at 88.1 FM, Mendocino County Public Broadcasting. You can check out our website at kzyx.org to find more content like this, and consider donating by clicking the red donate button in the upper right corner. Thanks for listening.